Chances are, if you're caring for your dad or making the difficult decisions regarding moving your mom into a senior living community, you're also doing other things, like managing a household, working a job, or even dealing with your own health issues. I'm your host, Valerie Borgman, and today's guest, author and life coach, Rosie Mankes, couldn't agree more. I was at a really bad place then between my brother also had passed away, my mom, this whole transition, the breast cancer journey, I needed to figure out those ways that I could just give back to myself. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Senior Living, a podcast for sons, daughters, grandkids, and spouses who suddenly find themselves tangled in the search for senior living and care. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and check out our doable download in today's show notes for a printable summary of the show and a bonus tip from our guest. Hi, Rosie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Valerie. I have to tell you, I'm really excited that you're here today because I think sometimes it's really easy to forget that adult children who are looking for senior living for their parents or memory care or even in-home care are also living their own lives, raising children and working and in many cases facing adversity, which was your story. You actually write about that in your book, Find Your Joy and Run With It. I heard that you wrote your book on a dare. I did. A producer friend of mine said, wow, the story is very compelling. You should write a book. And he never thought I would. And I did. And then I brought it over to him. He's like, wow, <laughs> nobody's ever done that. You know, <laughs> I've done that to a lot of people. Nobody's ever called through. So <laughs> That's so awesome. And I'm really glad that you took that dare because in your book, you talk about how you faced some really tough losses that included the loss of your relationship with your mom to dementia, which is so tough. And so where does your story start? Thank you for that intro. So my mom was like my best friend and, you know, for dementia, I would call her every day. She was the person I went to if things were happy and celebratory. She was the one that if I was struggling with something, I would go to her. She taught me how to be a mother and know how to take care of an infant. You know, she taught me all those things. And I'm very proud of my Italian culture and the special things in that culture that she taught me because my, my heritage was 100% Italian. So my mom started to become more and more forgetful, like in 2011, 12. And we started to see signs that she was uh, not just forgetful, but other things were starting to happen. So she lived in Brooklyn and I live in New Jersey. So about 45 minutes away, she was living alone at the time. So we would go to her house for visits and start to see that she had stains on her clothing. So she wasn't laundering her clothing. Body odor. You know, we learned we were just very at the early stages that people with dementia, they don't like to take a shower. As a matter of fact, as it advanced, when we did get her in home care, the companion would tell us that she would go into the shower, but she wouldn't go to anywhere near the water. She would just stand and puddle in the corner. There was photos of the shower gel. It wasn't changing. It wasn't going down. Food issues such as, is there food in her house? We learned as we moved along in this journey that my mom was eating cookies for dinner. She wasn't cooking for herself. There was food that was rotten in her refrigerator because she wasn't able to say, okay, this is has an expiration date, and it needs to go. As we continued on with this specific journey, the question came up about her having the ability to drive. I mean, if she's forgetful, would she forget to make it home? Or worse yet, could she hurt herself or somebody else? I actually took her to a neurologist 
with the intention of having them give her, the doctor give her a cognitive test and she failed and he took her license away. Well, that was really, really difficult because my mom started driving later in life and it was really, really important to her to have that sense of independence about, to be able to do things. But the real tipping point was when she was in charge of her meds for a very long time. And then one day we went for a visit to see her and she was face planted on her kitchen table. She had put two lunestas and an oxycodone in the same vial. Oh and, my gosh. and then it became, you know, time out. This is life threatening. She had some other health issues with her the, uh, very severe dairy allergy. And she had dairy, she could soil herself. And then she had the hemoglobin problem, which had bleed in her stomach at one point where her hemoglobin levels went to where the, the ER doctor said he wasn't even sure how she could have been alive. So you mentioned I was going through adversity as well. So this stuff is all going on around you know, we're starting to realize we need more help. At first, we started with a couple of days a week, somebody to come in, manage the meds, take her to stores, make her feel a little bit better about not having the ability to drive. Then it progressed to having full-time, 24-7 in-home care. And then we got to the point where between the digestive issues, the advancement of the dementia, that we needed to start to make this transition into a place where there's skilled, you know, workers that can care for her needs. And we're making that transition be summer of 2015 through the date that she went into the assisted living, which was December of 2015. But at the same time, I was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. I had uh, also tested positive for breast cancer gene and was going through multiple biopsies, lumpectomies, um, eventually a mastectomy in 2016 and, and reconstructive surgery. So my mom... Her care level, her needs were way up here and our ability, my ability is down here. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, you're showing me a big span. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of distance there. <laughs> exactly. And I come, as I said, from this Italian descent where we were brought up to believe, at least my family, I can speak for others, brought up to believe that you take care of your own. You don't put them into facilities. But her needs were so high at that point that we started to make the transition and it was the roughest transition ever. The people at that, the director of the facility, the nurse and the social worker. So imagine 90 years of combined experience said it was the toughest transition they've ever had of any resident moving into a facility. Challenging year because I'm going through all of my own specific health issues coupled with her resistance and, you know, trying to make that transition happen. Yeah. What were some of those challenges? So one of the things that we learned is that, which was working for us, is that if we said to my mom, you know, you're moving here and that's it, that was not going to go over well. What we did, we, we introduced it to her as a trial. We said, we'll do a two-week trial. So we broke it down into little digestible kinds of pieces of information for her. And dementia is kind of tricky, right? Because she could agree to a blue trial today and then say, I didn't say I would, I would go. <laughs> so it's a little tricky in that sense. But just that not being authoritative and telling her, you know, you need to do this. It's the best for you or whatever. That was not something that w was working. And we did that. We introduced it as a trial. But for me personally, what also worked was I didn't share with that I was going through a breast cancer journey because your listeners, listeners wouldn't know. But I'm a two-time cancer survivor. I had lung cancer in 2008, stage 1A, and my mom was well 
at that point, she dropped everything, took care of me and my, my young family and helped my husband out. And I just saw with her dementia, didn't, there was no good reason to tell her that I, her youngest daughter was going through another cancer journey. But what I did say to her is I said, you know, mom, there's some personal things that are going on. It would be really, really helpful to me if you live closer. So I try to make her my ally. But then the other thing I learned is, is to also follow up on that. Like, if you're closer, that means I can come by and just bring you a cup of coffee. Or I could come by and just give you a hug. So I would do that, you know, so that she would know that, okay, look, she's, you know, she's not coming just to visit me once every week. She could just pop in here and there. So that was important too. And, and then we did a lot of reading research and, you know, as I'm sure it's well known, um, but I'll share as well that it's super important to put things that are familiar to your loved one in their new room. Yes. He put her bed. She has a beloved uh, curio cad cabinet with yadros that she loves. We put some photos in the room as well. I think for me, one of the biggest things that I needed to learn was self-care and the way it was such an emotional journey, you know, understanding that she's saying, I want to go home. I want to go home. I don't want to be here. I've got to go home. I think in the industry, they call it redirection. We call it deflection. Like basically like you do with your kids, they'll say, you know, I want to do this. And I'm like, oh, we can't do it today, but we'll do it tomorrow. So with my mom, I would say, you know, mom, I'm really tired. Can we talk about this tomorrow? Or even with the, an actual visit, if I was in a visit and I felt vulnerable because I was feeling, you know, uh, guilty or sad that she's having such a hard time, I would just say, you know what? I just got a phone call from work and I have to leave. And that was the start of my self-care. I didn't even know what self-care was before that, but that was what I needed to do in order to preserve my strength to be able to help her get through this. Yeah, I I love that. I like to call those creative truths <laughs> because, right? Because you're you're thinking about your self-care, but it's in response to her. So it's also caring for her. The, the truth, the actual truth in dementia doesn't work <laughs> a lot of the time. So yeah, so I absolutely love that. And so when she, you mentioned the um, consistent, I want to go home, I want to go home, which is very common. Was that one of the challenges that, that the staff faced? And then did you become the tool to assist them? So that's an interesting question because the staff faced that for quite some time and we faced it. You know, my, one of my siblings, she, she was living at the time in Vegas part of the year and then in, in um, uh, New Jersey part of the year. And, and my brother that passed away, he came in to help with the transition. But I remember the first day that she was there and it was just a crazy mess. We were thinking, oh, wow, this is really tough. And I remember the staff saying to me, um, okay, why don't you and your brother go out to lunch and let us have some time with her? And I'm thinking, oh, okay, when we get back, this is all going to be better, right? 10 months, 10 months of middle of the night phone calls. My mother forgets everything, but she does not forget my phone number. That's for sure. Oh. <laughs> A lot of, you know, really rough kind of stuff. She was, she was angry. Everybody calls me Rosie, but my, my given name is Rosemary. She would call me Rosemary, get the truck and bring it around. I'm going home now, now. And I'm like, mom, you know what? We're just doing a trial. We're just, you know, I mean, it, it was a very abrupt thing. And she gave them a lot of pushback. 
one point we put a 24-7 companion in the room with her because we were worried that she could potentially be a, a flight risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard because, you know, you never want to make somebody do what they don't want to do. But at the same time, she just couldn't be, she needed so much more care than she could have had at home. Yeah. At yeah. That's, that's really so tough. And I'm glad that you found your self-care because we see that so often where the caregiver gets sick, more sick than the person they're caring for. And, and you were going through your own health crisis. To your point about self-care, I, that's when I started to say, I have to do these couple of things every single week like to preserve myself. And I created this list of like me time must-dos so that, the, and I've been doing them since. It's like, I, I have to move my body three times a week. That means exercise. I wear a bracelet called the blessings bracelet. It has four beats on it. And every day I acknowledge four blessings in my life. I started doing meditation and mindfulness. And when somebody said to me, meditate, I was like, oh wait, no, I have like a marching band going on in my head. This just <laughs> This is ever happening, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. I stuck with it. And now I just about, about a month ago, I, I celebrated 14,000 minutes meditating with Headspace, um, which is crazy. And then mindfulness, you know, staying present and trying to stay aware in that moment. But another one that was really important was acts of kindness to others, because when you do that, it's so special to that person, but you get back tenfold, but then acts of kindness to myself. And so what, at that point, I started writing down, I've been doing it since my journal. Today, I will be kind to myself by doing blank. And then I fill in blank. And it could be a bubble bath. It could be just reading with the dog snuggled next to me or, you know, going and seeing a sunrise or sunset. And it doesn't have to be big. Like something that I do that just brings me joy in that day. I was at a really bad place then between my brother also had passed away. My mom, this whole transition, the breast cancer journey, I was having a really rough time, so I needed to figure out those ways that I could just give back to myself. Today's episode is brought to you by life coach and author Rosie Mankiz. Rosie can assist you through crisis, health and wellness, caring for an elderly parent, and more through a customized action plan you create together. Her book, Find Your Joy and Run With It, is available through Amazon, and you can find more about Rosie in today's show notes. I love that you brought up meditation because I think that a lot of people out there do kind of their first reaction is like, whoa, I don't want to do that. But there are so many different types of of meditation. You can even find meditation that matches your religion. I think it's so important and, uh, and it's so, so helpful. And, and I also want to give a shout out to all the men that are listening (laughs) because self-care is so important for everyone, including you guys. You also wrote an article, What I Wish I Knew When I Transitioned My Mom Into an Assisted Living Facility. And I really loved that article because you touch on some really common themes. You've actually mentioned one of them already, which is guilt and denial. What were those conversations like with your siblings? You've mentioned your brother and and your sister at the time. What did that even look like? So they live out of state. The visits to all the different places were done by me. And it it was difficult because you're making a huge decision. You know, that burden is on your shoulders in terms of, is it the right one, right? Yes. 
they may not like it when they get there. So you're always worried about that. And I mean, I guess there were video tutorials in 2015, but not as quite as common as it is now. It came down to going and seeing places and looking and walking in and saying, oh, no, I can't, you know, just no. And then no. And then and then finding that right place. There was some strife in certain arguments about agreeing or not disagreeing on a certain tactic with you know my mom. But I think the biggest stress was not so much with my siblings. It was really my mom's just not it just wasn't something that she could even wrap herself around. She lived in Brooklyn. She's 91 now. So she's for the better part of 84 years of her only life that she ever knew. And now moving to a facility in New Jersey was just, she was terrified. And it just was heartbreaking. She kind of like said to me, um, why do I have to move to Jersey? You all left me. I didn't leave you. She was right. I mean, she was kind of right. We all did leave her. We didn't really leave, leave, you know, but trying to break it down into smaller things and making her feel like it was just a trial versus you're staying here and then continuously showing her that we're there. We're going to be there for the visit. I'm going to show up with a cup of coffee. Hey, let's go. We're going to grab a slice of pizza or something like that. I think those things were part of the way that helped her to transition. And I think it also helped that we picked a place and it was very important to me. My mom is a very sociable woman. We picked a place that had a very robust activity schedule and she started to settle in. As I said, probably after about 10 months, I could remember, and, and, I, and I'm telling you, 10 months of like a lot of strife. And one day she, she looked at me and she said, you see that lady over there? And I said, yeah. And she goes, she's never happy. You know, I have a three-room apartment and I have, they have social hour and they have nice meals and I like it here. And I literally just turned away and started crying for a second. And then I just said, I kissed her on the cheek. And I, I sometimes I can't even tell the story because I get choked up. I kissed her on the cheek and I said, mom, you know, I'm really happy you made this decision. So it was just such a nice story. I literally, yeah, I, I've tried, but I always get a little choked up telling the story. Oh my gosh. I love the way you said that. I love mom that you made this decision. I think that's so important. I really, really love that. It was, it was really, uh, it was a very special moment after a lot of strife that she actually looked over and said, I'm not sure why this person is unhappy. You know, I'm happy here. And it was, it was really big. Wow. And she is doing well now. (laughs) And that's, that's a little bit of hope for our listeners that after all of that, there can be that light at the end of the tunnel. But of course your story doesn't end there. Because you then moved on from assisted living to memory care. What was that transition like? So we started having conversations with the director of the overall facility and the director of memory care. And they were saying they're starting to see signs that she's not keeping up in assisted living. She's having to be redirected all day long. She goes to the med station 10 times a day. And we put up a little bit of a fight on that because... We didn't think she was ready to go into memory care. As your listeners may know or may not know, it's a lockdown area of the building. It's it's more supervised. And we pushed back a little bit. And then it was July of 2020. So we're, of course, in the throes of the pandemic. The facilitator comes in to my mom's room to set up a Zoom call with my sister. And she leaves for a minute. And then the aide came back in and she just said, oh, my God. And she found my mom was eating carrot 
poppy grinds at her oh. kitchen. Oh my gosh. So we, we said, okay, you know, we've been fighting against this, but the truth of the matter, she needs more supervision. She needs to be in the, an environment where there's greater care, more one-on-one. -on -one. So, you know, I called the director of the, the memory care area and I said, how is this going to work? I mean, it's a pandemic. I can't, we're not even supposed to come into the building. So imagine she has a little three-room apartment in assisted, and that's on the right-hand side of the second floor of the building. And they have the exact same unit in memory care on the first floor on the opposite side of the building. And they went in to her room, the assisted living room, and took photos of every single thing, everything down to the, every detail. I'm telling you, every, every single detail down to like, her little paper mache things on top of her refrigerator. And then they came and afterwards they sent me photos of the room in memory care. Every detail, every single detail was, was mirrored. Exactly. They recreated it. And they said, and now we're going to bring her into the room. They brought her into the room and she had no idea she was in a different place. And she said, wow, they really cleaned up in here. So she needed to be there. And like, that made me cry. They had so so much compassion and so much heart because they knew how fearful we were of this transition. But now reflecting back, like a year and a half later, I didn't. We never realized the toll that was on her face when she she had, she looked so tired when she was in assisted because she was probably being I don't want to say yelled at, but redirected all through the day, and she wasn't keeping up. Whereas now, it's simpler, and she's able to to be there and, and just be. Yeah. And having more staff to assist her when she's confused. And I think, I think we need to do a shout out to the community that she's at. Which community is it? Chelsea Solana in Marlboro, New Jersey. They are unbelievably wonderful people. Okay. We're going to put for all the New Jersey listeners, we're going to put a link <laughs> in show notes for them as well, because that is, that's the way it should be. That's exactly the way it should be. And that's, that's so great. And I, I think every family is so scared of these transitions because you've lived it and you know how difficult that they can be. And so to have that kind of support is great. And I want to circle back to something you said earlier too. You were talking about how you toured one community and it was no, and then another one and it was no. And then you finally found the one. And, you know, this is the advice that I give the families that I work with all the time. You'll, you'll feel it. You'll know. And, and I think it's so important to sort of listen to yourself <laughs> when you're going on the tours and you picked right. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, you know, for me, I'm one of those people that needs to be in the know. So I needed to sit down like and write out all of my questions and have all my things that I wanted to observe. Right. So like I had a, a piece of paper and a pen near my bed if I woke up in the middle of the night or near the shower and you know like things like the staff to resident ratio or for social things do they have a hair salon do they have social act activities do they go out do they have physical therapy on site how this is an important one for me and I think it would be important if I was going to do it over again too is how does the staff respond to a resident's request are they compassionate or are they authoritative because that tells a lot, right? Interesting. Or how long does it take to respond to a request? I visited a couple of facilities where, and I hate to say it, but there's the good and the bad, right? So a couple of the ones where I visited, I would be going through the tour and there'd be somebody saying, 
you know, need to go to the bathroom, please. I need to go to the bathroom. And then they, you know, they go to the bathroom. And I just, one day I just like lost it. I said, now, isn't it harder now they lost their dignity and you have to clean them than to have taken them? Like I just, one day I just, just lost it. And I'm not one to usually do that. But looking for those things like, you know, this smells, things like that. You want to be looking for those things when you go for visits. And, you know, if you're putting your, your loved one in an assisted living, it could be, for my, in my mom's case, she has dementia. So we're looking for mental stimulation, right? But then another loved one might be, you know, in a wheelchair. So their needs are completely different. So it's kind of like just sitting down and saying, what is it that my loved one needs? And what's going to be the thing that, that you know, some, some of the people don't leave their room. They're happy to watch TV all day. My mom likes to be out. She's kind of like me. I like to be out, and, and out, you know? So we knew that having a social schedule was going to be important for, for her for this to work. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely important to do the best that you can to understand the needs that your loved one has. Absolutely. And because there are also places out there that can't meet every one of those needs. So yeah, so that's really important too. But I will tell you one that really shocked me. I found out shortly after my mom was in the facility that male companions were allowed to shower female residents. And I just said, oh no, my mom, that's not happening because that's a dignity thing. And no, that's not happening. So I don't know if that's an industry standard, but, and I don't want to call out the industry on this, except to say that in my personal world, I didn't want that. So I want to share that for people know that they should ask that question. Yes, that is a very good point because there are male CNAs. There are definitely more female CNAs, but yes, this is something that could happen. And this is actually one of the questions that we ask families if there's a preference that they have, because unless you tell the staff that you do have a preference, then you might end up getting that male CNA. Yeah, it's an individual preference as a family, but I had no knowledge of it. And when I knew it, I knew it wasn't something my mom would want. Yes, that's so important. What you said, how would you know to even ask the question if you didn't have that knowledge? And, you know, hopefully that's what we can do here with the show is just help folks know what to ask some of those questions and to really be part of that support system, which is something you also write about. So what did your support system look like? It's funny because we're just thinking of another piece on that about the level of support that when you're going through something, the people that do rise up and um, are there for you. So as I shared, was going through breast cancer, my mom's transition and losing my sibling in a very, very awful way. My support was amazing. I had bilateral mastectomy on February 1st, 2016. My mom was only in the facility for a couple of months at that point. So I couldn't visit because there are so many things like C. diff and all these other things that they were Mercer, they were afraid. My friends mobilized and they went and they went to see my, because they know my mom. They called my mom, mom. So they did that kind of stuff to help me out. I also had a, a lot of help when it came to cooking for me when I had my mastectomy, either ordering in or food. And, you know, it's not necessary because we could order the food, but the fact that they're so wonderful, they want to do that. And then 
when my brother passed in a really sudden way and we needed to go to South Carolina because that's where he lived. He was on life support to say goodbyes. And then we would be coming back to New Jersey for a memorial. You know, I, I was, I was a mess and they came, my very close friends came to put a bag together for me because I really was not functional and take care of our pets. And then because we were having a memorial in New Jersey, when we returned back from South Carolina, they picked my my older son up from the airport because he was interning in California to pick him up at Newark. And when we got after the service that we had, when we got home, there was food for all the people that had gone to the church service, unwrapped, ready to go. I was the last person at the church saying goodbye to everybody. And and when we got, they would they kept everything moving in a lot of ways for me. So I'm very, 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 very thankful for the, the support and, and the support we give each other because we do, if, if another one of us, we're like sisters, if another one of us has something, we jump up for, for whatever that situation is to do with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. And whatever that is, of course, there are some folks out there that don't have family, but finding those friends or services even that can help you, that's just so important. And you are so lucky to have such a a great support system. Rosie, with everything that you have been through, what would you say is the number one doable tip that you have for families that are moving their loved one into assisted living or, or just starting the search? I would say be, be patient, go through and, you know, make sure that you have all your questions that you want. But one of the things that I think I learned and one of the things I think I did wrong was if I went into a facility and it didn't feel right, I went back again thinking it was going to be better. And it was not better. When I walked in, if it was bad, if it smelled or the residence was slumped over or not engaged, I would say, oh, OK, maybe I just went on the wrong day and I should come back. And I think that what I learned is if it doesn't feel right in your gut from the minute you're there, then it's not. Check out this episode's doable download in show notes for details, including industry terms and definitions we discussed, as well as a bonus tip from our guest. Have questions or your own tips to share? Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, make it doable.